0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois Music and Text, recorded by Toria's Uncle Chapter two Part two To understand and criticise intelligently so vast a work, one must not forget an instant the drift of things in the later sixties. Lee had surrendered, Lincoln was dead, and Johnson and Congress were at loggerheads. The Thirteenth Amendment was adopted, the Fourteenth pending, and the Fifteenth declared in force in eighteen seventy. Guerrilla raiding, the ever-present flickering after-flame of war, was spending its forces against the negroes, and all the southern land was awakening, as from some wild dream, to poverty and social revolution. In a time of perfect calm, amid willing neighbors and streaming wealth, the social uplifting of four million slaves to an assured and self-sustaining place in the body politic and economic would have been a Herculean task. But when to the inherent difficulties of so delicate and nice a social operation were added the spite and hate of conflict, the hell of war, when suspicion and cruelty were rife and gaunt hunger wept beside bereavement, in such a case the work of any instrument of social regeneration was in large part foredoomed to failure. The very name of the Bureau stood for a thing in the South which, for two centuries and better, men had refused even to argue. That life amid free negroes was simply unthinkable The maddest of experiments The agents that the Bureau could command varied all the way from unselfish philanthropists To narrow-minded busybodies and thieves And even though it be true that the average was far better than the worst It was the occasional fly that helped spoil the ointment Then amid all crouched the freed slave Bewildered between friend and foe He had emerged from slavery not the worst slavery in the world, not a slavery that made all life unbearable, rather a slavery that had here and there something of kindliness, fidelity, and happiness, but with all slavery, which, so far as human aspiration and desert were concerned, classed the black man and the ox together. And the Negro knew full well that whatever their deeper convictions may have been, Southern men had fought with desperate energy to perpetuate this slavery under which the black masses, with half-articulate thought, had writhed and shivered. They welcomed freedom with a cry. They shrank from the master, who still strove for their chains. They fled to the friends that had freed them, even though those friends stood ready to use them as a club for driving the recalcitrant South back into loyalty. So the cleft between the white and black South grew. Idle to say it never should have been. It was as inevitable as its results were pitiable, Curiously incongruous elements were left arrayed against each other The North, the government, the carpetbagger and the slave here And there, all the South that was white Whether gentleman or vagabond, honest man or rascal Lawless murderer or martyr to duty Thus it is doubly difficult to write of this period calmly So intense was the feeling So mighty the human passions that swayed and blinded men Amid it all, two figures ever stand to typify that day to coming ages The one, a grey-haired gentleman Whose fathers had quit themselves like men Whose sons lay in nameless graves Who bowed to the evil of slavery Because its abolition threatened untold ill to all Who stood at last in the evening of life A blighted, ruined form With hate in his eyes And the other a form hovering, dark and motherlike, her awful face black with the mists of centuries, had aforetime quailed at that white master's command, had bent in love over the cradles of his sons and daughters, and closed in death the sunken eyes of his wife. I, too, at his behest, had laid herself low to his lust, and borne a tawny man child to the world, only to see her dark boy's limbs scattered to the winds, by midnight marauders riding after damned niggers. These were the saddest sights of that woeful day And no man clasped the hands of these two passing figures of the present past But hating they went to their long home And hating their children's children live today Here then was the field of work for the Freedmen's Bureau And since with some hesitation it was continued by the Act of 1868 until 1869 Let us look upon four years of its work as a whole There were, in 1868, 900 Bureau officials, scattered from Washington to Texas, ruling directly and indirectly many millions of men. The deeds of these rulers fall mainly under seven heads. The relief of physical suffering, the overseeing of the beginnings of free labor, the buying and selling of land, the establishment of schools, the paying of bounties, the administration of justice, and the financiering of all these activities. Up to June 1869, over half a million patients had been treated by Bureau of Physicians and Surgeons and 60 hospitals and asylums had been in operation In 50 months, 21 million free rations were distributed at a cost of over 4 million dollars Next came the difficult question of labor First, 30,000 black men were transported from the refuges and relief stations back to the farms back to the critical trial of a new way of working Plain instructions went out from Washington The laborers must be free to choose their employers No fixed rate of wages was prescribed And there was to be no peonage or forced labor So far so good But where local agents differed totosilo in capacity and character Where the personnel was continually changing The outcome was necessarily varied The largest element of success lay in the fact that the majority of the freedmen were willing, even eager, to work So labor contracts were written, 50,000 in a single state Laborers advised, wages guaranteed, and employers supplied In truth the organization became a vast labor bureau Not perfect, indeed notably defective here and there But on the whole successful beyond the dreams of thoughtful men The two great obstacles which confronted the officials were the tyrant and the idler The slaveholder who was determined to perpetuate slavery under another name and the freedmen who regarded freedom as perpetual rest. THE DEVIL AND THE DEEP SEA In the work of establishing the Negroes as peasant proprietors, the Bureau was, from the first, handicapped, and at last, absolutely checked. Something was done, and larger things were planned. Abandoned lands were leased so long as they remained in the hands of the Bureau, and a total revenue of nearly half a million dollars derived from black tenants. Some other lands to which the nation had gained title were sold on easy terms and public lands were opened for settlement to the very few freedmen who had tools and capital. But the vision of forty acres and a mule, the righteous and reasonable ambition to become a landholder, which the nation had all but categorically promised the freedmen, was destined in most cases to bitter disappointment. And those men of marvelous hindsight who are today seeking to preach the Negro back to the present peonage of the soil know well, or ought to know, That the opportunity of binding the Negro peasant willingly to the soil was lost on that day when the Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau had to go to South Carolina and tell the weeping Freedmen, after their years of toil, that their land was not theirs, that there was a mistake somewhere. If by 1874 the Georgia Negro alone owned 350,000 acres of land, it was by grace of his thrift rather than by bounty of the government. The greatest success of the Freedmen's Bureau lay in the planting of the free school among Negroes and the idea of free elementary education among all classes in the South. It not only called the schoolmistresses through the benevolent agencies and built them schoolhouses, but it helped discover and support such apostles of human culture as Edmund Ware, Samuel Armstrong, and Erastus Cravath. The opposition to Negro education in the South was at first bitter and showed itself in ashes, insult, and blood. For the South believed an educated Negro to be a dangerous Negro And the South was not wholly wrong For education among all kinds of men always has had and always will have An element of danger and revolution Of dissatisfaction and discontent Nevertheless, men strive to know Perhaps some inkling of this paradox Even in the unquiet days of the Bureau Helped the bayonets allay an opposition to human training Which still today lies smoldering in the South but not flaming. Fisk, Atlanta, Howard and Hampton were founded in these days, and six million dollars were expended for educational work, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of which the freedmen themselves gave of their poverty. Such contributions together with the buying of land and various other enterprises showed that the ex-slave was handling some free capital already. The chief initial source of this was labor in the army and his pay and bounty as a soldier. Payments to Negro soldiers were at first complicated by the ignorance of the recipients and the fact that the quotas of colored regiments from northern states were largely filled by recruits from the South unknown to their fellow soldiers. Consequently, payments were accompanied by such frauds that Congress, by joint resolution in 1867, put the whole matter in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau. In two years, $6 million was thus distributed to 5,000 claimants and in the end the sum exceeded $8 million. Even in this system fraud was frequent, but still the work put needed capital in the hands of practical paupers, and some at least was well spent. The most perplexing and least successful part of the Bureau's work lay in the exercise of its judicial functions. The regular Bureau court consisted of one representative of the employer, one of the Negro, and one of the Bureau. If the Bureau could have maintained a perfectly judicial attitude, this arrangement would have been ideal. And must in time have gained confidence But the nature of its other activities And the character of its personnel Prejudiced the Bureau in favor of the black litigants And led without doubt to much injustice and annoyance On the other hand, to leave the Negro In the hands of southern courts was impossible In a distracted land where slavery had hardly fallen To keep the strong from wanton abuse of the weak And the weak from gloating insolently Over the half-shorn strength of the strong Was a thankless, hopeless task The former masters of the land were peremptorily ordered about, seized and imprisoned, and punished over and again with scant courtesy from army officers. The former slaves were intimidated, beaten, raped, and butchered by angry and revengeful men. Bureau courts tended to become centers simply for punishing whites, while the regular civil courts tended to become solely institutions for perpetuating the slavery of blacks. Almost every law and method ingenuity could devise was employed by the legislatures to reduce the Negroes to serfdom, to make them the slaves of the state, if not of individual owners, while the Bureau officials too often were found striving to put the bottom rail on top and gave the freedmen a power and independence which they could not yet use. It is all well enough for us of another generation to wax wise with advice to those who bore the burden in the heat of the day. It is full easy now to see that the man who lost home Fortune and family at a stroke, and saw his land ruled by Mules and niggers, was really benefited by the passing of slavery It is not difficult now to say to the young freedman Cheated and cuffed about, who has seen his father's head beaten to a jelly And his own mother namelessly assaulted That the meek shall inherit the earth Above all, nothing is more convenient than to heap on the freedman's bureau All the evils of that evil day And damn it utterly for every mistake and blunder that was made All this is easy, but it is neither sensible nor just Someone had blundered, but that was long before Oliver Howard was born There was criminal aggression and needless neglect But without some system of control there would have been far more than there was Had that control been from within, the negro would have been re-enslaved To all intents and purposes, coming as the control did from without Perfect men and methods would have bettered all things And even with imperfect agents and questionable methods The work accomplished was not undeserving of commendation Such was the dawn of freedom Such was the work of the Freedmen's Bureau Which, summed up in brief, may be epitomized thus For some fifteen million dollars beside the sums spent before 1865 And the dole of benevolent societies This Bureau set going a system of free labor established a beginning of peasant proprietorship, secured the recognition of black freedmen before courts of law, and founded the Free common School in the South. On the other hand, it failed to begin the establishment of goodwill between ex-masters and freedmen, to guard its work wholly from paternalistic methods which discouraged self-reliance, and to carry out to any considerable extent its implied promises to furnish the freedmen with land. Its successes were the result of hard work, supplemented by the aid of philanthropists, and the eager striving of black men. Its failures were the result of bad local agents, the inherent difficulties of the work, and national neglect. Such an institution, from its wide powers, great responsibilities, large control of monies, and generally conspicuous position, was naturally open to repeated and bitter attack. It sustained a searching Congressional investigation at the insistence of Fernando Wood in 1870. Its archives and few remaining functions were, with blunt discourtesy, transferred from Howard's control in his absence to the supervision of Secretary of War Belknap in 1872 on the Secretary's recommendation. Finally, in consequence of grave intimations of wrongdoing made by the Secretary and his subordinates, General Howard was court-martialed in 1874. In both of these trials the Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau was officially exonerated from any willful misdoing, and his work commended. Nevertheless many unpleasant things were brought to light The methods of transacting the business of the Bureau were faulty Several cases of defalcation were proved And other frauds strongly suspected There were some business transactions Which savored of dangerous speculation If not dishonesty And around it all lay the smirch of the Freedmen's Bank Morally and practically the Freedmen's Bank Was part of the Freedmen's Bureau Although it had no legal connection with it With the prestige of the government back of it and a directing board of unusual respectability and national reputation this banking institution had made a remarkable start in the development of that thrift among black folk which slavery had kept them from knowing then in one sad day came the crash all the hard-earned dollars of the freedmen disappeared but that was the least of the loss All the faith in saving went too And much of the faith in men And that was a loss that a nation which today sneers at Negro shiftlessness Has never yet made good Not even ten additional years of slavery could have done so much to throttle the Thrift of the freedmen As the mismanagement and bankruptcy of the series of savings banks chartered by The nation for their especial aid Where all the blame should rest it is hard to say Whether the Bureau and the Bank died chiefly by reason of the blows of its selfish friends Or the dark machinations of its foes Perhaps even time will never reveal, for here lies unwritten history Of the foes without the Bureau, the bitterest were those who attacked not so much its conduct or policy under the law As the necessity for any such institution at all Such attacks came primarily from the Border States and the South And they were summed up by Senator Davis of Kentucky when he moved to entitle the Act of 1866 a bill To promote strife and conflict between the white and black races by a grant of unconstitutional power The argument gathered tremendous strength south and north But its very strength was its weakness For, argued the plain common sense of the nation If it is unconstitutional, unpractical and futile for the nation to stand guardian over its helpless wards Then there is left but one alternative To make those wards their own guardians by arming them with the ballot Moreover, the path of the practical politician pointed the same way For, argued this opportunist, if we cannot peacefully reconstruct the South with white votes We certainly can with black votes So justice and force joined hands The alternative thus offered the nation was not between full and restricted Negro suffrage Else every sensible man, black and white, would have easily chosen the latter It was rather a choice between suffrage and slavery, after endless blood and gold had flowed to sweep human bondage away. Not a single southern legislature stood ready to admit a negro under any conditions to the polls. Not a single southern legislature believed free negro labor was possible without a system of restrictions that took all its freedom away. There was scarcely a white man in the south who did not honestly regard emancipation as a crime, and its practical nullification as a duty In such a situation The granting of the ballot to the black man Was a necessity The very least a guilty nation could grant a wronged race And the only method of compelling the South To accept the results of the war Thus Negro suffrage ended a civil war By beginning a race feud And some felt gratitude toward the race Thus sacrificed in its swaddling clothes On the altar of national integrity And some felt And feel only indifference and contempt Had political exigencies been less pressing The opposition to government guardianship of Negroes less bitter And the attachment to the slave system less strong The social seer can well imagine a far better policy A permanent Freedmen's Bureau With a national system of Negro schools A carefully supervised employment and labor office A system of impartial protection before the regular courts and such institutions for social betterment as savings banks, land and building associations, and social settlements. All this vast expenditure of money and brains might have formed a great school of prospective citizenship and solved in a way we have not yet solved the most perplexing and persistent of the Negro problems. That such an institution was unthinkable in 1870 was due in part to certain acts of the Freedmen's Bureau itself. It came to regard its work as merely temporary, and Negro suffrage as a final answer to all present perplexities. The political ambition of many of its agents and protégés led it far afield into questionable activities, until the South, nursing its own deep prejudices, came easily to ignore all the good deeds of the Bureau, and hate its very name with perfect hatred. So the Freedmen's Bureau died, and its child was the Fifteenth Amendment, The passing of a great human institution before its work is done Like the untimely passing of a single soul But leaves a legacy of striving for other men The legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau is the heavy heritage of this generation Today, when new and vaster problems are destined to strain every fiber of the national mind and soul Would it not be well to count this legacy Honestly and carefully? For this much all men know Despite compromise, war and struggle The Negro is not free In the backwoods of the Gulf states For miles and miles He may not leave the plantation of his birth In well nigh the whole rural south The black farmers are peons Bound by law and custom to an economic slavery From which the only escape is death or the penitentiary In the most cultured sections and cities of the South, the Negroes are a segregated, servile caste, with restricted rights and privileges. Before the courts, both in law and custom, they stand on a different and peculiar basis. Taxation, without representation, is the rule of their political life. And the result of all this is, and in nature must have been, lawlessness and crime. That is the large legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau The work it did not do because it could not I have seen a land right merry with the sun Where children sing and rolling hills lie like passioned women wanton with harvest And there in the King's Highway sat and sits a figure veiled and bowed by which the traveller's footsteps hasten as they go. On the tainted air broods fear. Three centuries thought has been the raising and unveiling of that bowed human heart, and now behold, a century new for the duty and the deed. The problem of the twentieth century Is the problem of the color line End of chapter 2